So I'd like to uh, share some of what I learned, what I explored in the last month of retreat and use that as a way to talk about some fundamental aspects of our practice. To use the themes of the retreat as a way of bringing some further clarity, understanding, and direction to what we do, what what all of us do, to the nature of our practice. And I like very much and appreciate the opportunity to um, to speak now and to tell the story. It's kind of the equivalent of a um, slideshow of what I did on my vacation. <laughs> sort of a spiritual th- slideshow. Uh, of course, people don't show slides anymore. But what would the equivalent be? Uh, um, Posting of the relevant snapshots on the on the web, <laughs> out of sight, so where you where you can download them if you wish and have it hooked up to a service where you can actually order prints if you wish. So, so I think I'll begin with uh, kind of a short poetic set of practice instructions which I worked with, which were almost like a a core theme for me during the retreat. It's very short. Uh, And there are lines that were inspiring for me. Uh, And I'll give the full version later in the talk, but this is something that I worked with over the 30 days or so on retreat uh, as a way to uh, guide myself. And the words come actually from a 16th century Tibetan uh, teacher and writer named uh, Dagpo uh, Tashi Namgyal, who is a great uh, writer. This is pointing to some of the qualities, uh, I believe, of a awake presence, which is what we all are um, touching at times, trying to strengthen, trying to develop further, trying to have more and more present in our lives. That's what we want, that isn't it? Isn't that what the Buddha is about? Developing an awake presence. That's not just that. Oh, and uh, being awake means not just being present and aware, but also being wise and skillful, and having a very open heart. So these these were the words that I use. Actually, probably I repeated to myself twenty times a day over the time of the retreat. Now I'll see whether I can remember them. (laughs) Just joking, of course. (laughs) Open like the sky. Pervasive like the earth. Unshakable like a mountain. Shining like a flame. Lucid like a crystal. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. Isn't that nice? 
Very nice. And I'll come back and actually use that partly later to do a kind of guided meditation, because I think that's really what I found is using those words invoke the very quality that they speak of. And we can use these, you know, you can use these in daily life. Some traditions use words like that to invoke states of mind. Some of you know Thich Nhat Hanh uses poetry to do that, uses words and poetry. We, we tend to have the practice here be like a silent practice, and which has its own beauty. And in a way, poetry comes out of the silence. But it's also possible to let the language guide us and invoke, really, you know, as good poetry does, as, la- as skillful language does, it invokes a state of mind. So, <clears throat> so I was on retreat along with um, 90 others <clears throat> and have done that kind of retreat. I think this was the um, ninth time in the last 12 years that I've done four to eight retreats during February or March. So it's familiar territory, but still very, very precious to have that opportunity. You know, it's really the most in-depth retreat that we offer here at Spirit Rock is to have one to two months. And there were probably 60 people who came for uh, February, 60 people who came for March, and about 30 who stayed for both months. And um, we were in silence for that time, except for sort of functional talking if one worked in the dining hall or kitchen or uh, doing some job that required a little bit of speaking. And then we would meet with uh, a teacher to talk about our practice every two or three days. So it's also very nice for me to be, uh, as it were, in, I don't like to so much use the word student role, but to be in the retreatant role, because I'm also, um, you know, in the teacher role as well. So to be uh, to be in that role is very, very well. And I think, you know, it's actually interesting. I think we have a little bit of a way that teach, well, I think teachers are seen often as more special than they might be in Asia. In some, in some ways, in some ways, yes, some ways, no. In some ways, no, because we have kind of like a democratic culture that is, we- that is wary of hierarchy, right? It's wary of too much hierarchy. But on the other hand, uh, beca- I think partly because of the economics, teaching becomes a career, almost like a vocation, in ways that are different from how it is in Asia. And in the Asian context, I think one is first and foremost a practitioner who might sometimes teach. And here, I think it's a little bit different. Sometimes we think of ourselves as teachers and we may lose. I think it's important to keep that sense that being a practitioner, we're all practitioners and that we take different roles. I, I think that's, that's helpful. So, um, what was interesting about this retreat was that I, uh, pretty much the entire time, I just stayed in my room. And I've done that before in terms of the meditation, but this time I stayed in my room. I didn't even go to the evening talks. I stayed in my room the whole time, and I had, over time, I worked out a very nice schedule. It was kind of like we, I was in my room doing practice, and the only times that I wasn't doing practice is it felt like when I was 
I went with the other retreatants for our feeding. <laughs> it felt like that sometimes, like we all kind of, like our animal nature takes us down to the dining hall where we're, where we, in silence, we accept food and eat food very eagerly. You know, it's kind of, it had its, to me it's had its humorous aspects watching that. Um, but worked out a rhythm, just to give you a sense of the, the retreat of um, waking up about five, a little bit before five, and actually uh, doing qigong for half an hour in the morning. Very wonderful with uh, Tija Bell, wonderful uh, qigong teacher who teaches at a lot of our retreats. And qigong or some kind of body practice is a beautiful adjunct to um, meditation. And qigong especially because it works with the energetic body and it's really so quite wonderful. And I often did further qigong at other times uh, during the retreat, just kind of to balance energy, to um, really uh, work consciously with the body. Very important. So, and then I would uh, meditate for about half an hour. Then there'd be breakfast, and I'd take kind of a morning long walk, and then come back probably about, uh, I don't know, 7.15 in the morning after breakfast, 7.30, clean up, and basically have about three and a half or four hours in my room doing practice. Then at the end of the morning, the end of the afternoon, the end of the evening, I would go out and walk for half an hour outside. Typically when other people were in the hall. So I would have the whole retreat center to myself and be walking. And I would walk kind of up on some of the heights and that's when I would say, open like the sky. And I'd look at the sky and say, open like the sky, pervasive like the earth and so forth. So um, I think you get, it was actually delicious. You can, I think you get a sense of it. It was quite, quite wonderful for different reasons. You know, having done a lot of retreats and a lot of practice, um, I don't know. I haven't had sort of personal or psychological issues come up for quite a while. It's, it's something I have had plenty of times where those came up. Not to, but but there, there is a certain point where one comes through the other end of that and where there's just this exploration of the nature of the mind and of the heart and opening and reality. And that's possible. I just want to let you know. And we get taste of that, of course, in our meditation or retreat. But the kind of the, the stuff uh, which is there for uh, a lot of people, most people on retreats, even very experienced people, um, does uh, at times uh, fade away. There is some, and then and that permits kind of a, a different kind of uh, practice to develop. There's, so there's something I think that's important Generally, our, I think an aim of retreats, retreats are powerful because they give support, just like our gathering here. And uh, the support is really, really crucial to help us develop. It's almost like a retreat environment is basically everything is telling one, pay attention. You know? You're in the hall, your mind wanders, you look around, okay. Other people surely look like they're absorbed in deep concentration, bliss, and insight, even if they're doing exactly the same thing as you are. But, or they, they, they look like that. We kind of think that. And but in any case, we're inspired to practice, right? You know, we're in this setting where we're really clear in the focus, and the retreat is like that, you know, maybe 17 or 18 hours a day. Everything is saying, 
pay attention, take everything as learning. Everything is learning, keep doing the practice and so forth. It's support for that. I think eventually it's very valuable to have that support increasingly come from within. So one doesn't increasingly need so much support. That's a direction of the practice. And, you know, one of the ways that helps move towards that, um, call it uh, increased self-reliance, is doing something like, um, well, I think we do that when we do practice at home, right? That's, a, that's, that's going in that direction. We practice at home. So, and you could even, when you do, after you've done some retreats, you can start doing a day or two of retreat at home and see what that's like. You know, and for me, I think also being uh, in my room takes some of the props away, as it were. And I think it made it very, I mean, I, I've done retreats at home, but very easy to think of doing something like that, even without being at the retreat center. But the retreat center gives tremendous support. And, you know, there's this famous passage that from the Buddha and near the end of his life, where he talks about self-reliance as really, really crucial. Even though he founded this um, organization and order, which gives beautiful support, he said near the end of his life, it's, it's usually translated as be a lamp unto yourself. Do you know that passage? It also can be translated as, this is one translation, you should live as islands unto yourselves, being your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma as an island, with the Dhamma, the Dharma, the way things are, the teachings as your refuge, with no other refuge. Very um, important that we move in that direction. Uh, and so it's one way of looking at it or practice. We get a lot of support here, but the long-term direction is to have the practice and the support be internalized. Not easy, right? Not easy. But that, of course, permits us to have increasingly a full practice just wherever we are. Wherever we are, you know, uh, wherever we are, the support is in our moment-to-moment mind. That's an aspiration. Generally, retreats are wonderful in a lot of ways. They're also very challenging, I have to say. But they're wonderful in a lot of ways. Uh, Sometimes it's said that retreats uh, take us away from a lot of the factors that can tend to cause either distraction or bad habits. You know? So, um, no computers, no cell phones, no email. I mean, those are obviously useful, but they also can be distractions. No internet, actually a, a radical, uh, radical simplification and focus happens in retreat. Uh, and maybe some of the things at home that might tend to, I don't know, support our habits aren't there in the same way. And so we have the opportunity to drop or modify or lessen some of our habits which aren't so helpful. It's a very important aspect of, of retreats that they can do that. And there's this chance really to use every moment fully, which is something I love, you know, that there's this 
sense, I, I've had the sense for a long time that at retreats I almost live as fully or more fully than I do elsewhere. Of course, some parts of my life aren't there, but there's a fullness of presence and awareness <coughs> that we may feel when we meditate. You know, I remember when I was first doing retreats, I was in graduate school, uh, when I was doing a lot of retreats, and I would sometimes think, graduate students um, with whom I was studying had ambivalence about their studies. And I sometimes would say, I feel like 30% of me is in my graduate work. And that's lucky, because a lot of people it's 5 or 10%. Sad commentary, but that, that's what I thought at the time. And, but I said, when I go to retreats, it feels like 100%. And, of course, not everyone would feel that, but that's what I felt. And it was really a sense of being able to, to be full. What we do at a retreat, and really is what we do increasingly just here, is I think uh, two, one way of saying it is that we drop the inessentials and we focus on the essentials of life. We often can get taken away by the inessentials, by the distractions in everyday life, and we can be forgetful of what's most important. It's quite, it's quite common that that happens. So retreats permit, permit us to reverse that process. And I think, again, we probably can substitute for retreat just practice. Practice goes in the same direction. An hour sitting, you know, taking an afternoon, doing reading and so forth. So we, and you know, for me, again, even as a teacher, being on retreat, especially near the beginning, I could see my preoccupied mind, and all the things on my to-do list. <coughs> Anyone here have a lot of things on your to-do list? <laughs> I mean, again, there's something important there, but they can, they can dominate us, can't they? You know, and, and they can, we can forget about the, the essentials. You know, and sometimes we focus on too many things. We get interested in too many things. Uh, from Thomas Merton, from 1960, he said, the rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of innate violence. Strong language. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, is to succumb to violence. It kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. A strong statement again. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, is to succumb to violence. It kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. And so we may not attend to what's most important. And then what happens? We wake up. It could be you know, a midlife crisis, a... <coughs> you know, revelation after we've retired, something later in life, uh, you know, and, and in little ways we're set up for that. I, you know, I remember very much when I was a college teacher and I was at uh, Kenyon College in Ohio and I would ask my students, um, how many of you, how many of you 
if you could take a job that you really did exactly what you wanted to and just had a pretty modest income, would do it. And three quarters of the people raised their hands. About one quarter were into making a lot of money and not doing what they really wanted. But most wanted to. And then I said, how many of you think that you, can actually, you will likely find a job where you actually can do what you really want to do? And about uh, maybe one or two in ten raised their hands. Right. And so what happens to those people? They get really busy. They're doing work they don't really like. They forget their deeper impulses. And they, if they're lucky, they have a midlife crisis. Right? If they're lucky. Yeah. So, so retreats cut through that. Practice cuts through that. You know? And we focus more on the essentials. You know, we, it's almost inevitable that one focuses on the great task, what in Zen is called the great task of life and death. You know, that one brings to mind, you know, as in the Tibetan tradition, one is asked often at the beginning of practice to reflect on the preciousness of a human life. Remember, I've taught some of this a uh, you know, number of months ago, that we're invited to reflect on the preciousness of a human life and that to have a human life there with relatively good health, the opportunity for practice doesn't happen to that many people. It's very precious. And to have the opportunity for practice is very precious. To reflect on impermanence and death, certainly something that I did, reflecting on, you know, it's especially near the beginning of the retreat, you know, um, what do I really want to do? How many more years do I have? You know? Not morbid, of course, reflections, but just really what comes when we take some time and have some degree of silence. And so it's not so much um, thinking in a nervous way about that, but really to really look that square in the face and say what's important you know, in the light of that. And to realize in, in the Tibetan teachings, they go on to say, also reflect on, what, on, on karma, they say, which I interpret especially to mean that every act matters. With everything we do, every moment we are setting future patterns in motion, or influencing, I should say, future patterns. Every choice I make influences my tendency in the future. And again, it's not to be nervous about that, or, oh my God, what am I going to do? Everything is going to have its consequence. But just to say, it's really to ask, what, what is important? What do I want to do? You know, at the retreat, it can be very simple. It can, do I want to indulge my greed for a second piece of that very excellent lasagna? <laughs> That's how it translates, right? It's small stuff, right? It's small stuff. Uh, and in everyday life, that's how it translates. It's the small stuff. What should I do here? And again, it's not to be overly coming from a judgmental mind, this intense superego saying, there, you screwed it up again. You'll pay for that. That's karma. That's not, not like that, but more like the quality of um, really just, it's really a wisdom quality. It's knowing that every action matters. Every action matters. And we can 
with mindfulness, we can sometimes, and this is what happens on retreats, there's enough mindfulness so that we catch our habits and we can say at certain moments, do I really want to go there? That's where mindfulness happens. That's where the learning happens. It doesn't happen by just stifling the bad habits. It happens by watch. It happens by watching the habits start to move. There's mindfulness, and we say, "Do I want to go there?" Because I know if I go there, I have a more, little more wisdom present. If I go there, I will tend to support that habit for the future. Do I want that? So very important. And so just to be with what comes up, be with the challenges, you know. Some of it's just watching the nature of the mind, which can be incredibly humorous. As is sometimes said, the mind has no shame. Have you noticed? You know, so I, I thought I would tell one story which illustrates this and just acknowledging. Um, this happened again near the beginning of the retreat, but it's just watching just how our minds work. Uh, again, a lot of the teachings of the mindfulness point to just watching. So just, you know, um, I was in the dining hall and, you know, on retreats, you know, anthropologists would have a good time because there are all these elaborate, no one's talking to each other, but there are all these elaborate little ways that people are setting up social reality, you know. <laughs> and a lot of stuff happens in the dining hall. It's a main, you know, those of you who've been on retreats can relate to this, but you know, it, 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 there's a humorous aspect because everyone's in silence, but all, there's all this stuff happening and, you know. Uh, <laughs> but people have a chance to watch it, that's the thing. So here's something that I noticed in my mind, that um, there's sometimes, I think there's, I could notice, there's sometimes an unspoken etiquette where when one's sitting at a table, one gives as much space to people as possible, you know. So when you would look to tables, uh, you would often see like at a table that had five chairs on one side, five chairs on another, there might be a person in chair number one on one side, chair number two on the other side, chair number three on the first side, chair number four on the second side, so that people are not sitting next to each other and they're not looking directly across from each other. There's a little bit I sense there's a little etiquette of that, not universal, but uh, some of that, some of that happens. So I certainly was aware of that. And so here it was. One day I was at lunch and I was sitting next to the window in, we could say, chair number five. Okay. And there was uh, someone sitting across from me in number four. Sort of, these, these aren't numbered like airline, <laughs> <laughs> airline seats or something, but. Um, and then, and then someone came and sat right next to me, and there there were two other chairs to the left that were free. And I said, "Hmm." And but <laughs> what was interesting was that, of course, I'm not looking at the person, but I sensed the body shape of the person, and I think that it's a person who is a little bit on my my negative list. Again, this is near the beginning of the retreat. Towards the end of the retreat, I took these as learning experiences and opened up into universal compassion. <laughs> but, uh, 
but at the beginning there were some rough edges. So um, anyway, this, so so but but this is everyone has their their kind of their good and their bad people, you know. In one retreat, I actually used I was working with the practice that we know called Vedana, which is noticing the unpleasant, pleasant, or neutral factors with each moment of experience. And very important teaching. And I used this. I started using this in dining hall. And one, one day, um, with every person who came in, I just checked out whether the person was registering as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It was very interesting. I think, actually, psychotherapists often undergo a similar training to understand the roots of uh, transference and countertransference, if you know that language, like there are reactions to people. Because there are, we have those, right? And so I would sit there and say, um, moderately pleasant, someone comes by, then very pleasant, then moderately unpleasant, <laughs> neutral. <laughs> like that. Anyway, so we have, our, we have our little list like this. And so I thought that this... I thought that there's this room for study of the judgmental mind here. So, <laughs> so, um, so this person, I kind of had a sense of the body shape, and I thought it was this person who was on my negative list. So I sat, sat there a little bit, and I was a little bit stewing, you know? I said, Man, why did this person? Man, it's just another, you know, another mark on the ledger or something. <laughs> you know? and, and then I actually looked at the person, and so it wasn't the person I thought it was, but that was actually a person who was on my good list. And immediately everything evaporated. And it didn't matter at all. <laughs> you know? And I just say that because I assume that that's just a little bit familiar. <laughs> right? That our minds work like that. And part of what we get, of course, something like that could happen for each of us 50 times a day, right? But we get to study it on retreat, and it's quite wonderful. And there is, there are those moments like that of humor. There was a lot of, you know, I had, after that experience, I just had to say, you know, it, it gave a lot of humor and a lot of spaciousness, and I said, hmm, I'm going to look into if I do anything like this again, you know, in that retreat. And I, I didn't, and I actually started developing a lot of compassion for the person who was on originally on my negative list and actually started feeling very warm. And actually, what I actually ended up doing a lot in the dining hall was doing loving kindness and heart practices almost the whole time in the dining hall, you know, which, which kind of brings me, maybe I wanted to mention, I was doing three main practices. Heart practices, which I was doing especially in the dining hall, partly prompted by that experience, but, but also, uh, but really several hours a day really doing loving-kindness, compassion, what's called um, bodhicitta practice, which is the practice of um, wishing that others awaken and help others. Wishing that everyone awakens. So it's not just wishing them well, but it's wishing that they actually awaken to their deep nature. And doing that, that was my, that was my practice. A good probably three hours every day for most of the retreat doing those kind of practices, really helpful. I also did, initially, I did concentration practice, like we've discussed. The first four days or so, I did total focus on the breath to come to a place of settledness. And just only the breath for four days, and then I kind of branched out, and that helped settle the mind and stay fairly quiet and still for the uh, rest of the retreat. 
And, and then I worked with more with insight practices, with opening up to awareness, to really see the very nature of experience more carefully, the nature of, of um, awareness. So it would be just look at nature of impermanence, studying moment-to-moment experience as impermanent, as flowing, as changing. And just we're encouraged in our practice really to be at home with that, to study that. Because the idea is that when we don't know impermanence and we don't know how things are flowing so much, we tend to grasp and the grasping brings suffering. And so we're really encouraged to look at impermanence. We're, we're encouraged to look at any moments of suffering and study them. And we're encouraged to see how much we create constructions of self all the time, like in my story. That was a, there, were, there were self-constructions going on there, right? Not just constructions of me, but constructions of others, my relation. There was a lot going on. And over time, those settle. But they have to be looked at. They have to be looked at very carefully. And then as the, as the practice deepened, there could be this opening into studying the very nature of awareness. You know, this studying awareness as this um, quite kind of luminous presence. Very mysterious, right? Scientists don't know what consciousness is. Right? They don't know what they can correlate it with some things, but they really, what is consciousness? How do, you, how do you study it? Well, you can study some things, but you can't study it from the inside like we do. And it's mis- mysterious, you know. They're, they're, I believe that consciousness and studying awareness and consciousness is a direct route to the sacred. That when we deepen our sense of presence and awareness, and we've worked through some of the self-material, and we've looked at suffering, we've looked at impermanence, and we've, that when we deepen that and deepen that, we come in touch increasingly with something that we could call the sacred, and something that's quite uh, beautiful and, and powerful. And that our mindfulness practice is a doorway. We're moving in that direction. You know, that because mindfulness, in a way, anticipates the sacred. It's this open presence that's just noticing. And it's very, very beautiful. So in that context, I worked with this phrase. And I'll read the full text and maybe just close. Let's see, maybe I'll I'll read the text, say a little bit about it, and then leave some time for us to talk together if you wish. So the full text is about the sky and earth and mountain and flame and crystal is Elevate your experience and remain wide open like the sky. Expand your mindfulness and remain pervasive like the earth. Steady your attention and remain unshakable like a mountain. Brighten your awareness and remain shining like a flame. Clear your thought-free wakefulness and remain lucid like a crystal. Maybe I'll just very briefly go over these, and I'll invite you as I say them to go inside and let yourself be guided by these words. Open like the sky. You might feel that quality of receptivity, of spaciousness, 
like the sky, a kind of empty presence. And if you wish, you can keep your eyes open and imagine the space of this room as like the sky. It's a practice you can do outside also. Open like the sky. And feel the space in front of you opening up. Pervasive like the earth. And for me, I kind of feel my awareness going in all directions, in front and back, to left and right, like just like the earth going in all directions, pervasive like the earth. Unshakable like a mountain. And feel that quality of firmness that you, that part of you that's balanced, that can't really be knocked around, that has confidence. And for me, I sometimes would feel a vertical axis like a mountain, going almost like fastened to the earth. And feel that in your body, unshakable like a mountain. shining like a flame and feel the luminosity and brightness of your own consciousness. Even like a fire perhaps, like a flame. Filling up the space, it's kind of like the space is also shining. It's like like things are glistening, they're shining. Knowing, lucid like a crystal. Feeling your awareness have a quality of lucidity or knowing. And again, it can be with eyes open or eyes closed. If they're open, you can feel that clarity that lets you actually see things, see people, see objects, and stay with that quality of being lucid like a crystal. I'll just close with uh, one more repetition of this little little poem uh, functioning as a meditation guidance. And again, if you'd like to let this guide you and just in this moment, please do so. Open like the sky. Pervasive like the earth. Unshakable like a mountain. Shining like a flame. Lucid like a crystal. <laughs> 